1: Connect the dishes
0: to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories.
1: Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? You may have ascertained that I am not at 100% due to the nature of my voice, which is probably a bit more um, lower than usual. Been coughing a lot. Rough times in the Strickland household, but I'll be okay. So uh, because of my condition... That I'm a bit under the weather, uh, we're going to present to you something special. You know, I did this a few weeks back where I brought up an old episode of Business on the Brink, the show that I used to do with Ariel Caston, where we would take companies that were at a real inflection point, like either they were just about to take off or they were just about to disappear and talk about what happened and how we got there. And a lot of those companies, of course, have something to do with tech. So today, I thought we would do uh, the the episode titled "The Brink Plays Games with Sega." Hope you enjoy.
2: Sega. From slot machines to Sonic the Hedgehog, this company played its way into people's hearts.
0: But in the 90s, they made a few key mistakes that would make them lose the trust of their gamers.
2: And by the time they came out with a elite new system worthy of consumer's praise, it was too late and their market was gone.
0: Learn how this company spun out of control and out of the console game. This is Sega on the Brink.
2: everybody. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. And I want to apologize. That intro had far too few puns in it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Game over, Ariel. Game over. over. So uh, this was a um,
2: request from a from a Tony? Yeah, I... Isn't your husband's name Tony? Yes, there may or may not be any relation to that, but you know what? <laughs> it's a really good suggestion. Now, hey,
0: uh, if my wife had made a suggestion, I would have gone with it too, so well, totally I, cool. It,
2: I put it in listener suggestions because he doesn't work on this podcast, so it's a listener suggestion.
0: Totally, yeah. So this is a great story to cover in the sense that... It's easy to forget it now. But Sega for a while was riding high in the video game console world. And for a brief period, it looked like they could become the dominant name in video game consoles. And then everything went wrong. So it's to the point now where people who think back on the Sega consoles, they tend to fall into two camps. They're either the people who wistfully remember how awesome those game consoles were, mm-hmm. or are there are people who think of it as a big joke. It's a little of both. A little of both, because of, largely because of the, the very moves we're going to talk about in this podcast. But just in the interest of full disclosure, I was someone who got hold of a Sega Dreamcast system, which we're going to talk about in this episode. Uh, I got it after the Dreamcast had already made a splash and was fading from memory. So this was, they weren't making new Dreamcast games by the time I got hold of the system. It was all the used game market, uh, but I was blown away by the Dreamcast. So when we talk about people who truly love that system, I'm one of those people.
2: I want to mention at the beginning of this that as much as we say that Sega's kind of fallen out of memory, people were saying they might make a comeback And the fact that there's a Sonic movie coming out. Yeah,
0: a Sonic (laughs) movie that is rapidly undergoing massive changes. Uh, As we record this, uh, the news recently broke that because of the overwhelmingly negative reaction to the Sonic the Hedgehog teaser trailer, they are going to redesign— Sonic's look, which is a pretty massive undertaking for a for a CGI movie. It
2: is. I'm really rooting for them to get it right because I think a Sonic movie, I enjoyed the stories when I played the games, and I think kids would enjoy a Sonic movie. I
0: didn't realize there was a story.
2: There's a story. Dr. Um, Robotnik steals little animals and turns them into... I just
0: figured you ran really fast, and when you hit stuff, you Rings popped out of you.
2: <laughs> I mean,
0: which I mean, that happens, happens in, to me too. Yeah, yeah it's. I mean, I, I get it. It's true to life. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, just a little bit about Sega's origins to kind of set the scene of how they were able to climb in the home console space. Now, obviously, the story of Sega starts before there was a home video game console market.
2: We're actually not going to start at the very beginning of the company that becomes Sega because it's a lot of little steps. Yeah, It's not very important. There was a slot machine company made in Hawaii, and eventually the Army said, we don't want slot machines on U.S. Army bases anymore, which is where they were selling their machines to. So they went over to Japan, where they still could sell games, and they became Service Games Japan.
0: Yeah, as Service, thus the uh, the nod to making games for like military installations.
2: Yes, and when they went over to Japan, they were being run by Martin Bromley. Now, in 1960, that company liquidated and split into two divisions. I'm going to pronounce this probably very poorly. Nihon Goroku Busan, Mm -hmm. which traded under the name Utomatic Inc. for distribution. And Mm -hmm. then Nihon Kikai Seizo, which traded under the name Sega Inc. Sega is short for service games, taking the first two letters of each.
0: So they made slot machines, but they also made jukeboxes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously this is pre-arcade game days. And where do we go from there?
2: Well, eventually those two companies recombine. Now, at the same time, you've got Rosen Enterprises, Inc., also in Japan at the time, run by David Rosen, who is another army man. His company started as an art exporting company, taking art from Japan, exporting it to the U.S. during the Korean War. And then he became an arcade game importer in 1961. Mm -hmm. And Then he became a producer of electromechanical arcade games, so the precursor to video games. Right.
0: This would be games that would actually have moving components to those. So a pinball machine is sort of a variant of these games, but uh, you had all sorts of different ones. There's a great arcade game museum in San Francisco where you can actually see some of these electromechanical games, and you can play them, uh, these electromechanical games. And it is funny to see how human ingenuity came up with ways to to convince people to part with their change.
2: I, I believe it, and I would part with a lot of change there, I'm certain. Now, Rosen was very successful at this, and in part because he had other engineers helping him from companies like Nihon or Kupasan. And so he started looking for mergers. And the one that panned out was with Nihon Gorku Basan, or Sega. And they merged in 1965. And I'm going to call it NGB from this point. They acquired Rosen Enterprises. And Rosen became the CEO. And they renamed the company Sega Enterprises, taking the Sega from...
0: NGB, what they were trading under. Mm-hmm,
2: and taking Enterprises from Rosen Enterprises. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they were making the electromechanical arcade games and jukeboxes. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, they started coming out with their own games in 66. The first one that really got some traction was a game called Periscope. Mm -hmm. And they even started opening up Essentially arcades, they were called game centers, but I mean, they are like arcades in the sense of uh, like the video arcades uh, made famous in the 1980s.
2: Periscope, by the way, was so good that they started importing it to the US.
0: Yeah. So there actually ended up being an international market for the game.
2: Yeah. And then in 1969, Sega was acquired by Gulf and Western, who had been largely trading in pinball machines from my understanding. So now Sega has pinball machines.
0: Yeah. So they start doing those as well. As a pinball enthusiast, uh, I appreciate that. I love pinball games. And Sega was then trading on the U.S. stock market. So they were now not just on Japanese markets, but also in the U.S.
2: In fact, primarily in the U.S. Mm -hmm. by this point.
0: And they had uh, Sega Enterprises Incorporated, and they essentially shifted their operations to the United States, although they maintained an operating arm in Japan as well.
2: Yeah, it was an LTD. After that, they started moving into video games, both in the arcade and at home, and seeing the trend. There have been a couple of games that people have attributed to this. The one that is coming to my mind is Pong. Yeah. So they saw Pong and they said, well, this is the way things are going. Let's jump on the train. And they even acquired a U.S. gaming company called Gremlin in 78 to help them expand into that market. Mm -hmm.
0: So, you know, we kind of skipped over a lot of the the early 70s, but that was more of the same. It's really when you get into the mid to late 70s where the arcade games, the video games started coming out where this this story starts to change. Uh, They were doing pretty well. That division was doing pretty well, but the overall parent company, it was a different story.
2: Yeah. So, Golf and Western hit some trouble and they sold the U.S. division of Sega to Midway Games in 1983 At which point, Sega became a primarily Japanese company again.
0: Yeah, Sega North America was absorbed into Midway. Midway is another company we'll have to do a Brink episode on sometime in the future. Uh, Midway, famous in the United States for the Mortal Kombat series. Yes. Um, Midway is no more. So that's another story that has its own Brink moment, but we'll save that for its own episode.
2: Yeah, and Sega does have operations in the U.S. again. Yeah. But at that time, they shifted. So Rosen wanted this video game market that they had built, so he and some others bought it back from Gulf and Western.
0: They buy back the Japanese branch, right? So the North American branch, that's part of Midway. Rosen goes back to the Japanese side and purchases that one back from the parent company.
2: Yes, and in 1983, Sega had its first console, the SG-1000, which was, I'm sorry if I offend anybody, nothing to write home about. They also had a microcomputer come out at that time, which I think was the SG-2000 or 3000.
0: I cover this for a living, and I don't remember ever reading about the SG-1000.
2: Yes. Well, they had a really hard time competing with Nintendo because Nintendo already had market share. Yeah. And then in 1986, Sega came out with their first successful console, the Sega Master System.
0: Yeah, but then the Nintendo Entertainment System was still pretty much the dominant player in that space. I mean, remember that the Nintendo Entertainment System was the system that was able to bring the video game home market back from the crash of 83. Yeah,
2: well, Sega realized that they were not necessarily going to get Nintendo's market, so they focused on markets that weren't saturated with Nintendo already, places like Brazil and Europe. And they became the second most popular home system in the world kicking Atari out of that spot, which I'm surprised Atari was even in that spot. I'm guessing it's from lack of competition.
0: Yeah, no, because no one else wanted to get into the video game console market after that crash, right? Yeah. So Nintendo, everyone thought Nintendo was crazy for getting into a market just as it had imploded. And Nintendo was able to prove that there was still a market there, but no one else had anything ready to compete in that space because they had all either gone out of business or had changed their minds about developing a console. So it was kind of open ground. Uh, And so even though the Sega system wasn't catching on big here in the United States, so a lot of people in the U.S. were completely unfamiliar with it, there was enough demand in other countries for it to be a big success. Well,
2: all of that was about to change. Well, at least the not being in high demand in the U.S. part. Because in 88, they came out with the Sega Mega Drive.
0: Which in the United States is better known as? The
2: Sega Genesis. Yeah. And it was not only a really popular console, but it was also really the first 16-bit console there was, which is probably why it was so popular.
0: Yeah, it was a a dramatic improvement over the 8-bit systems like the Nintendo Entertainment System Mm -hmm. that came before it. And uh, it got the jump start on the Super Nintendo, which was an, another 16 bit system.
2: Yeah, along with that system, they implemented a good marketing strategy. They had really good games, which we know is very important for the success of a console.
0: Yeah, you need to have a good launch library.
2: Yeah, this is around the time we get Altered Beast.
0: Yeah. I watched a long play of that just the other day, and I forgot how bonkers that game it is. It is
2: crazy. Yeah,
0: it's pretty nuts. It's if crazy. you don't know what we're talking about, do a YouTube search for Altered Beasts Sega. And uh, yeah, it's all about transforming into various types of monsters as you make your way through multiple levels. And it's
2: really hard. It it's is. It's a really hard game. But this gave Nintendo a fight because up until that time, they had 90% of the market share. By 91... Sega was doing real well, both in the arcades and in the home console arena. In the arcades, they were coming out with 3D games like Virtua Racing, and and
0: Virtua Fighter, and Virtua. A Fighter. lot of Virtua games. There was Virtua Tennis. I remember was, that was all under the Sega label.
2: There is virtual Virtua virtuous. Yes, people now oh. virtually
0: virtuous. It's I can identify with that.
2: By that time, Sega was in forty-four countries. And they came out with Sonic the Hedgehog.
0: Yeah, kind of their answer to uh, to Nintendo's Mario. It became like the, the mascot for Sega.
2: Yeah, and it looks like Sonic might outpace Mario. Well, I mean, he can run really fast. He can run Mario, really fast. Mario
0: just jumps.
2: Well, Sonic jumps higher. Uh, <laughs> now, Nintendo did gain ground back with the SNES when it came out. So Sega did a couple of moves that would spell the brink for them. One was the Sega 32X cartridge and the other was the Sega CD. Yeah,
0: these were both uh, additions to the Genesis. It was an attempt to boost the Genesis's power and to extend the lifespan of the console by giving it additional capabilities beyond the basic system. And essentially, the company had a couple of choices, right? They could have gone down that route to try and augment an existing game console Or they could have designed the next generation console to have those things built into it natively and launch that. They decided to go with the augmenting approach. So more more like a computer where you would buy a new graphics card for it.
2: Yeah. Shortly after, they did also design a console, which was a whole nother problem. Yeah, the Sega Saturn. The Sega Saturn in Mm -hmm. 94. Now, Sega Saturn was a really big hit in Japan. And at that time, they also launched things like indoor theme parks and the Sega Channel which is a whole story of its own. Mm -hmm. But Sega Saturn. Big hit in Japan, but... Not a big hit in North America. Yeah. And the peripherals for the Genesis weren't selling. So these three moves are the things that brought Sega to the brink.
0: The stuff that would push Sega over are yet to come, but this kind of sets the stage. So with that in mind, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll explain a bit more about what pushed Sega over the edge.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: All right, so we mentioned the Sega Genesis and the peripherals, or if you prefer the Sega Mega CD mm-hmm. system. It was a Sega
2: um, CD in the US. It was the Mega CD in Japan.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about this peripheral and why it failed to really get a lot of traction. This was the peripheral, the additional thing for the Genesis that would give it more capabilities. The Genesis, when it released, was a cartridge-based system, very much Mm -hmm. like the Nintendo Entertainment System, the SNES. Even the Nintendo 64 that would come out later was still cartridge-based. So what were the the thoughts behind going to a CD-based system?
2: All right, well... First, the Sega CD would allow for full-motion video games.
0: <laughs> Which sounded good in theory back at the time.
2: Yeah, but they were really grainy. Yeah. And a lot of them had very little to no gameplay.
0: Yeah, let me let me tell you about one of them. Sure, the, I'm listening. The famous one, Night Trap. Have you heard about this one? <laughs> I have heard about this. Yeah, it, it starred a, a person who had formerly starred on the, the show Different Strokes. Uh, it's about a group of young women who are having a sleepover party. And you're playing a super creepy neighbor, I'm guessing, who is looking in on the home while the women are having their party. And there's about a billion masked intruders trying to get in there. And you activate a series of traps in various rooms to stop the invaders from getting at the young women. And I'm talking about like crazy traps. Like people are, are you're watching these guys sneak past a wall and you hit a button at just the right moment. And then a video would play where the wall would like rotate around, possibly sending those intruders to their demise. You don't really know.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was weird.
0: And yeah, full motion video sounded great because you're like, look at the amazing technical capability. We can actually show full motion video, but it meant that we had to pre-record everything. Mm-hmm. So there was very little control. Like you couldn't control a full motion video person in perfect motion because that capability wasn't there. You would essentially do a choose-your-own-adventure kind of approach to games, which meant that there was very little gameplay to actually have. Yeah, yeah the CDs were supposed to be able to store a lot more information than cartridges mm-hmm. could. Now on the flip side, you had companies like Nintendo saying... We don't want to go down that path because we feel that the CD format is easier to pirate. And in fact, Sega would have problems with that as somebody who may or may not have come into possession of an enormous folder of pirated disks. I I know nothing. Yeah. Uh,
2: But there are other problems with the Sega CD beyond being piratable. Yeah. And, And you're right. They could hold more storage. They also had better audio because they used an audio cd drive not a cd rom mm-hmm. for it but these units were not universal so depending on what version genesis you got you'd have to either get a sega cd that was
0: compatible with that specific e- yeah, version yeah
2: so some sat like completely underneath and some were on the side of
0: so that's that's confusing to the consumer
2: yes and then all of these peripherals had their own power sources
0: Right, so so it's not like they even could just take power from the main console. You had to plug them in separately. Yeah.
2: Also, it meant, and
0: I love that you have this note here, because it's, it's a clear problem, it meant that you were already limiting your market, mm-hmm. right? Because the only people you can sell that peripheral to are people who either own a Sega Genesis or are buying a Sega Genesis at the same time and they just want to have the full thing kitted out.
2: Which takes a lot of money. Yeah.
0: So so you're essentially saying, these existing customers I already have, I'm trying to upsell those customers. But you're not winning new customers with that approach. So you've already limited the amount of success you can have with that product as opposed to coming out with a brand new console that might win not just your existing customers, but new customers. Yeah. And that ended up being one of those strategies that ultimately would come back to slap them in the face.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and we'll get to that because they did design a CD console. It was a Saturn. Uh, but first, I also want to talk about the 32X. Mm-hmm. It was actually made to compete with the Atari Jaguar and have very little software support.
0: Yeah, which is kind of interesting because the Atari Jaguar, it turns out you didn't really need to compete against it. No,
2: no. And and that's the only reason I wanted to mention it. It was supposed to bring arcade quality games to your home.
0: Yeah, it was called 32X because you had the 16-bit system. This was to to make it a 32-bit system. And
2: that's cool. But again, expensive. You can't really enter in if you've got to buy three separate machines unless you've got a lot of extra money. Yeah. And the 32X only sold 665,000 units globally. It sounds like a lot, but it's not.
0: Yeah. Also, uh, it couldn't quite match the quality of the arcade experience. And that was the big selling point, right? They were saying, this is going to bring the experience you have at the arcade into your home. Mm -hmm. And the reality was, it wasn't quite good enough for that. And so... Some of the people who bought it felt like they didn't get the promise that they were, you know, it,
2: it wasn't delivered upon. Yeah. So then we get the Saturn CD, which we previously said did really well in Japan. And not
0: so great in the
2: U.S. Yeah. In Japan, it sold almost 500,000 units in the first month. But then they announced e B3 in the mm-hmm. U.S. And they were trying to compete with the very new PlayStation. Yeah. And the Nintendo 64, which were both already out. Mm-hmm or just about to come out. And so they panicked and they announced that the Sega Saturn was coming out six months ahead of schedule and it was going to cost $400 instead of the around $800 that it would cost you to get a basic model from Japan.
0: Yeah, so this was an attempt for them to try and steal some of that market share away from their competitors, right? Like they're, vastly underpricing the console is one of those strategies that a lot of console makers have where you sell the console at a loss and you hope to make it up in selling titles, games.
2: Except for they didn't have enough games because they didn't think a lot of the Japanese games would translate well to America. So those didn't get released in the US. And then you've got all of these game developers who are trying to program these games for the release of the Sega Saturn which is already a little bit more complicated to program for because it used dual CPUs, which was a redesign after they found out what the PlayStation specs were. Yeah. And so they're rushing to get their games out. And Jonathan and I are huge geeks. We've had all these conversations about how rushing a game just leads to poor gameplay. Yeah, And that was true in this case. And so there was poor gameplay. There was a very limited library. And then they also didn't adjust their marketing For the gamers that were growing up, they were still focusing largely on teenagers.
0: Yeah, and as it turned out, the people who grew up with games were sticking with games. And if you marketed toward them, you tended to do well. Mm -hmm. And if you just kept on aiming for a constantly refreshing young market... It didn't do as well, and that really hurt Sega. Yeah, I I think the process of making it difficult to program, like we've heard that before too. Uh, PlayStation 3 had a similar issue because they changed the architecture for the system.
2: Yeah.
0: And if you were working for the company, so if you were working for Sega, if you were a developer and you worked for Sega, or you were a developer and you worked for Sony, you had a better chance of developing a decent title mm-hmm. for that console, but if you're a third-party developer, and third parties are the ones that are making some of the most popular titles out there, yeah, certainly. and you encounter this problem, then internally you start asking yourself the question, does it make sense for us to even make a game for this system considering how much time and effort it's going to take, or should we just focus on making titles for a competing system where we know we can turn them out faster? So it was a whole combination of things largely on Sega's rushed decisions to try and compete more vigorously against the PlayStation and the N64 that really set them back.
2: Well, and they couldn't even because this rush deadline also meant that their systems were in poor supply. Shortly after they announced that their system was coming out early, PlayStation, well, I guess Sony said, hey, our PlayStation is only $299 instead of $399. So now they're coming out early, but they can't compete with PlayStation in price. Yeah. And Nintendo had better games and gameplay. It was more powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. So it was it was like a double whammy. Yeah. So you found a, a quote from the guy who had, was CEO of Sega during this time, Tom Kalinske. In 2015, he would, had an interview and his quote is, I'm going to read it out verbatim. Had we waited until we had more and better games, launching with all retailers instead of with a few, with marketing that could reach every player, we would have been much more successful, even if that meant waiting for a late October or November launch. So. We usually put our lessons at the end of Brink episodes, but here's a lesson right in the middle of this one, which is sometimes being first is not as important as being best.
2: Yeah, and I'm sorry. We probably could have just said that quote instead of talking for the last seven minutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But then you wouldn't have the Brink. You wouldn't have the Brink.
2: But also around this time, arcade attendance started falling. Yep. It didn't help. Uh, I mean, we still have arcades, but... And, and and they do better overseas than in the U.S. But in the often. U.S., it,
0: it, yeah. In the U.S., it used to be a staple. Like, every mall had at least one arcade, and now, yeah. like, there's only a few game centers or bowling alleys that, that even carry video games. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's they're few and far between in the States.
2: And I believe that at the time, Sega was looking at a merger with Bandai. Mm-hmm. And in 97, that was called off. Mm-hmm. And all of these things led to downsizing and layoffs, not surprisingly.
0: Yeah, so they really were setting their hopes on the Dreamcast. They they really thought maybe the Dreamcast system could succeed where the Saturn had failed. They really put a lot of work and design in the Dreamcast and it showed. Mm-hmm. But the damage had been done already, right? The, yeah. the missteps they made with the Genesis peripherals, the missteps with their CD system had kind of turned a lot of gamers off. They had a bad perception of... Sega, the company, as far as hardware is concerned. Yeah,
2: but we're going to talk more about that right after this quick break.
0: Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan. And on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready
3: Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. All right,
0: so now we're going to talk about the Dreamcast A system I still own.
2: I think we own one too.
0: It's actually really easy to hook it up because you can just hook it up through a coaxial cable Mm -hmm. to your machine. In fact, you could even feed cable through a cable system to your game system and then from the game system to the television because I used to do that. Uh, My my Sega Dreamcast, which I do still own, is not currently connected to my television, but it could be.
2: It should be, Jonathan. It should be. Well, the Dreamcast came out in... 98 in Japan and 99 in the U.S. Yep. About a year apart from each other. Not like a few months apart, but about a year. And it was a sixth generation console for home by Sega and the last one.
0: Yep. And uh, gamers who got it saw that the system was pretty boss.
2: Yeah. People still say that it's—not everybody. A lot of people say that it's one of the best consoles that's been created. It
0: easily stood toe-to-toe with the competing yeah. consoles on the it was It was advanced compared to the competing consoles on the market. It even, I would argue, it didn't equal the following generation of consoles, but mm-hmm. it was pretty darn close. Well, it
2: was the first one to have a built-in modem mm-hmm. for online gaming. It was the first one to do voice recognition for online gaming. And it had really great graphics and really great sound.
0: It also had that that Fishman game.
2: Seaman uh, Man. You know- you That's know what, what it was? A seaman which is interesting. If you're not familiar <laughs> with it, you should or should not go look up. I can't I can't even recommend Flip for you a, to go look at a YouTube video me, of it hey, cuz it's weird.
0: Yeah, if if you feel the need to
2: not sleep ever again, go look it up. But then they came out with really great games. Oh like yeah, absolutely. Crazy Taxi and Jet Grind Radio and ports of their arcade games that also were really great on this console, Shenmue and Soul Calibur 2, just to name a few.
0: Yeah. Soul Calibur was probably my favorite series.
2: Yeah, and they even won an award for the most successful hardware launch in history. And it sold over 500,000 units in the first week as opposed to the Saturn, which had only sold that many in a month.
0: Yeah, so incredibly well out of the gate. But unfortunately, that was not sustainable.
2: Yeah, because then we got the PlayStation 2.
0: Yeah, and the PS2... Ended up winning over a lot of people right away. PS2 is a great machine. Mm -hmm. I still think the Dreamcast is better than the PS2. Yeah, but
2: a lot of people had already switched over to PlayStation. Yeah,
0: there were a lot of people who were already in the Sony ecosystem, and they thought, oh, well, I already love this game system. I bet this one's going to be, it's two. I bet it's twice as good. I'm going to go with that.
2: So they stopped making the Dreamcast in 2001, and support for it ended in 2003. And games were produced into 2007, Yeah, over 30 of them, but unless you get a really ambitious Kickstarter, you're not going to get more games. Interesting. I, I
0: didn't realize they were being made even that late. I know that I got my Dreamcast after 2001, which is when they had stopped making the Dreamcast. But, you know, I'd only been around for two years in the U.S.
2: You had a lot of fans that were... Making games, you had a lot of crowdsourced gotcha. games. Apparently, it was pretty easy to make them for the Dreamcast.
0: It was definitely easy to pirate them. Not that I would know from personal experience. <laughs> I didn't pirate them. I just, I just got hold of something. I mean, someone I know got hold of a whole full. Yeah, of
2: them. just keep digging that hole, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, in March of 2001, they announced, you know, we're out of console game. We're just going to focus on software and third party game publishing. And they did some restructures. the The first game they released for another competitor was for Nintendo.
0: I feel like this was probably what broke the spirit of the company, right? Because the Dreamcast, like we said, was truly an, an a revolutionary product. Mm-hmm. It was a good game console. People liked it. And yet the company, like the the actual hardware, ultimately failed in the market. Like it, it, it had a great reception. It had early buzz, but it wasn't able to keep on with that. And I think that must have been a very hard decision to come to at Sega to say, listen, we gave it our best shot and it wasn't enough.
2: Yeah, it even gets a little bit sadder before it gets better. They looked at a bunch of mergers. The president of Sega at that time, of Sega Japan, passed away shortly after that. He did give $700 million to the company um, to try to help bolster its, (laughs) its success. It didn't really help. In 2003, they announced a merger with SemiCorp.
0: Which uh, made uh, pachinko machines and things like that.
2: Yeah. And then Namco said, no, we want to buy Sega. And then both of those fell through. And then a few months later, SemiCorp came back and bought Sega. Mm -hmm. But in 2012, they had to restructure again. So they cut more jobs. They closed multiple branches. And they announced that they would only be focusing on developing digital content. So... Free to play and phone apps and things like that.
0: Yeah, far cry from the old uh, arcade and console days.
2: Yeah, and then driving their existing IP because Sonic, Sonic still comes out with games. Yeah, and people still like them.
0: Yep, for the m- most part. Yeah, so they they can make <laughs> some money licensing that intellectual property. Hmm.
2: And yeah, since then they've even they've even made a few acquisitions and like I said there've been some talks of a comeback recently. Yeah. So so they've continued
0: to make games for other platforms, but they haven't shown any sign of getting back into the the home console market apart from there were rumors every few years. Yeah. But I, I heard a rumor really about ins-
2: something in 2020 but I couldn't substantiate it.
0: Yeah. So uh, we hear this pretty much every few years, like, let's wait till E3 and maybe we'll hear another announcement of this beloved game company coming out with a console again. And uh, honestly, there might be a possibility of that happening. You know, we've got the next generation of consoles right around the corner. Sony's getting ready with their big announcement for the PS5. Mm -hmm. They've talked a little bit about it already. There's always rumors about what the next Microsoft console is going to be. So maybe we will see another attempt in the future. It is very challenging to get into a market that has been dominated by three powerhouse players?
2: I think their biggest hope would be really banking on those gamers who are now grown up and middle-aged, oh, that hurt to say, and now have, you know, expendable income to relive their fond memories.
0: I'm sorry, I can't hear you. My elderly ears couldn't pick up on the sound. I was putting myself
2: into that category as well, Jonathan. Okay, fair enough. There there are a couple of fun facts. I do want to at least say one of them, which is the Sega Genesis motto, mm-hmm. which is Genesis does what Nintendon't.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember that ad campaign. Yeah, and there's some other things we could talk about. We didn't mention the infamous Game Gear. That was mm-hmm. a handheld game system that Sega came out with, but it was uh, plagued with problems, not the least of which was if you wanted to play it, you better have a steady supply of batteries on hand because it, it drained those suckers. And it
2: took like six of yeah, them.
0: Yeah, it was not the most efficient uh, game system out there. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot more we could say, obviously, about Sega, but that was the the real nut of the problem that mm-hmm. they faced was that They probably, rather than go with the Sega Genesis peripherals, should have thrown more attention and support behind the The Saturn. Saturn. And that might have given the Saturn a a real chance of success. Instead, they kind of confused the market and cannibalized their own sales. Mm -hmm. And then by the time the Dreamcast came around, which was, again, truly an awesome console, they just didn't have enough goodwill out there and enough enthusiasm to... Push them hard enough so that when Sony came out with a PS2, they could really compete. Yeah. Which is a shame. But, you know, we don't know what the future holds. Maybe we will see Sega return truly from the brink. I would say right now they're still beyond it because they're a shadow of what they used to be. I would agree. But um, who knows? Maybe once they do the Sonic the Hedgehog redesign for the movie, yikes.
2: I've seen some good fan art of what the redesign could look like.
0: Yeah, but that's fan art. (laughs) I mean maybe honestly I was surprised to see that a company would take that initial reaction so seriously as to go that uh, incredible step because I mean that is that's not a small endeavor to no. to redesign, reanimate, re-render All of that work because you figure they must be almost done with the movie by the Mm -hmm. time they're releasing trailers, at least a good portion of the movie. And then you're essentially deleting the character and reinserting the character with possibly with the same animations, but still a totally different design is going to cause all that rendering to to back up again.
2: Well, especially after researching this episode and talking about Sega, I hope that the redesign is successful and that a new generation falls in love with little blue speedy hedgehog.
0: Yeah, I do too. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Business on the Brink. That was an interesting show to work on. Uh, big shout out to my co-host Ariel, who, I mean, you you just don't know. She did so much work on that show. She was an incredible researcher and organizer. And was a joy to work with. Uh, We also did Large Nerdron Collider together, which is currently on hiatus, but is planning to come back very soon. She's uh, actually uh, on vacation right now with her family. So wishing her all the best. Wishing you all the best. Hope you are happy and healthy and safe. Uh, I'll be getting there soon enough. It's just a little bump in the road. And uh, yeah. That's it for this episode. If you would like to leave me a message, there are a couple of ways you can do that. You can send me a voice message by going to the iHeartRadio app, navigate to the Text Stuff page. There's a little microphone icon that you can click on and then leave up to a 30-second long voice message. Uh, and you can even let me know if you would like us to use the audio in an episode, and we will. We'll use that to help launch an episode. Or, you know, you can just tell me what your ideas or your quest or anything like that. Or if you don't want to leave a voice message, you can also always leave a message to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. That's concur.com.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. <laughs>
0: Zumo Play.